where is God? This is a question that we often ask ourselves in, in times of crisis, after natural disasters like, like floods or earthquakes, after acts of terror uh, or mass violence, after wars and genocides. We, we look back in, in the immediate aftermath of, of a tragedy, and, and we think to ourselves, where, where is God and, and what's taken place? And I think really what we're asking in that question under the hood of that is, how could a good God allow this? If God is, is all-powerful and if God is all-good, how could he allow something tragic like a, like a hurricane or a terrorist act to take place? If, if you dig a little bit further into that question, I think what we're asking in that thought process underneath is, is how can a sovereign God allow this? If God is, is all-powerful and all-good, and if he is the just king that the Christian faith purports him to be, then how could he allow something like genocide? In, in order for us to be able to, to, to grapple with these questions, and, and, and more at a, at a fundamental level, for us to be able to understand how God interacts with and is in control over his reality, then we need a, a right understanding of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And so my hope for us this morning is, as we examine our text, to be able to unpack that just a bit. So as we look at our text this morning, it's, it's good to see where we are and, and where we've come from. Uh, over the past four weeks, Rick and, and Bob Burris last week have been preaching a, a kind of a, a mini-series within our look at 2 Samuel called The Sword Shall Never Depart. 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 16 has captured the, the decade of David's life following his sin with Bathsheba and, his, and the murder of her husband and that cover-up. And so in response to this, God told David that the sword shall never depart from your house. And we've seen this in the past four weeks. I really appreciated what Rick said when he preached on, on chapter 13, I think four or five weeks ago now, that, that the author's intent in these passages of Scripture is, is for us to, to feel the weight of sin. It's, it's not, not just the weight of, of David's sin, as we've been reading about the, the family and the kingdom drama that's come as a result of, of murder and cover-up. It's the weight of sin in our own lives that should be impacting us as well. Granted, most of us are, are probably not living out like a real-life Game of Thrones with palace intrigue and drama and all of that, but the, the reality is that Scripture is, is highlighting here the, the deadly cost and, and the depravity that results in our lives from sin, and, and that, that should impact us, and it, it should grip us as we read through these narratives. So as, as we come to chapter 17 this morning, we're almost kind of getting a, a break from this action and the weight that we've been feeling as, as the action sort of pans away from David a little bit as he is fleed and, and the, the focus sort of zooms in on what's happening in Jerusalem. Absalom has, has come into the city and, and he has publicly proclaimed himself to be the king in the sight of all of the nation. We saw this at the end of chapter 16 where Absalom had gone into David's concubines on the roof of David's house in a, in a very primal display of him saying, I am now the king. This was done to fulfill what God had promised to David as a result of his sins. In, in chapter 12, we saw God saying through Nathan the prophet, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. At the end of, of this, what we see in chapter 16, the narrator tells us that, that Ahithophel, who was previously David's counselor, has, has since betrayed the king. And the, the counsel that he gave was as if one consulted the word of God, is what the text tells us. And so at the outset of chapter 17, as we begin this morning, we have a, a traitor on the throne, the, the true king ordained by God fleeing for his life. 
and the counsel of the wicked that is treated with unparalleled authority. So things seem to go from bad to worse as Ahithophel puts together a plan to eliminate David once and for all. Our text starts with the word moreover. And so what the author wants us to see as we read chapter 16 and continue with no break immediately into 17, Ahithophel puts together a proposal to chase down and destroy David. And note the response of the war council here that we see in verse 4. The advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and, and, and all of the elders of Israel. And, and in other words, this logically makes sense. What, what Ahithophel has proposed here at the outset of our chapter seems like a good plan. So let's go for it. If there was ever a time for us as the reader to ask, where is God? It would be at this point in our text. Where is the God that, that raised up David? Where is the God that made his covenant promise to David back in, in chapter 7? What, what the text wants us to be asking as the reader is, has David's sin so completely undone him and what God has promised that there is no hope? Because a, a logical read of this text might say, yes, there's a, there's a traitor sitting on the throne. David's on the run. There's a solid plan in place to finish him off. And so for no reason, and when I say no reason, I mean there's no reason that the text gives us as we work through the story. Absalom summons Hushai to deliver counsel as well, and this, this should strike us as, as a little bit odd. We've just seen a few sentences ago that Ahithophel's counsel was, was trusted. It was almost revered. There's no reason, no logical justification for, for what Absalom does as to why he wants a second opinion. He just, he just calls for one. And so we should notice the, the difference in the way that, that these two sets of, of counsels are, are given. Ahithophel's is, is cold, it's restrained, it's, it's calculating, whereas Hushai's is, is, is longer. It, it's more eloquent. It seeks to almost sort of stir at the heart of, of Absalom. Ahithophel's plan focuses largely on himself. Notice the, the, the personal pronoun that's used multiple times in Ahithophel's plan. If we start from verse 1, he says, let me choose 12,000 men. I will arise and pursue David. I will come upon him. I will strike down the king. I will bring back all of the people. Hushai, on the other hand, knows that the wicked heart of Absalom is, is more interested in, in his own ego and in his own gain than he is in, in military victory or just logically making sense. Hushai's plan encourages sort of, sort of an, an egotism and like a grandioseness in, in what Absalom wants to accomplish. He, he encourages Absalom to gather together the, the whole nation under his rule to prepare for battle. From Dan to Beersheba, he says, which is, which is representative of the whole nation. Dan was, was located at the sort of the northernmost end of, of Israel, and Beersheba was located toward the south. And so this is a phrase that we see in the Hebrew scriptures that, that are indicative of the, the nation of Israel as a whole. And this is in, in verse 11. I think we see an interesting phrase at the end of this verse. He says, as the sand by the sea for multitude. If you're reading First and Second Samuel, as, as one worked together, another place you would have seen uh, a similar phrase is in First Samuel chapter 13, where Saul is preparing to fight the, the Philistine army, and they're just depicted as this massive, numberless, faceless group of, of enemies. There's another illusion at play here as well that, that goes all the way back to Genesis 22, where God promises Abraham that his offspring would be numbered as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of on the seashore. And so what the author wants to paint is a, a, a picture of Hushai saying, Absalom, go, look, com command the, the whole army, the whole nation can be yours. And if we're an attuned reader of scripture, we're seeing the same language that God has promised to Abraham now being used in a way to evilly influence Absalom and his control 
of the nation. The author of, of 2 Samuel is, is giving us these distinctions in the council, these two men. And, and we examine them here, not just as an, an exercise in, in literary analysis, but because of the way in which the author writes tells us something about the character of God. We, we see this in verse 14 as this paragraph ends. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And I think it's interesting to note that in, in, in one way, this, this, this verse is almost sort of an, an afterthought. If, if we're, like a little parenthetical note, if we're reading the text as a narrative, there's nothing in this verse that really moves the, the story forward. There's nothing that really pushes us as the reader. It's almost as if the, the author of Scripture is, is taking just a little parenthetical footnote and, and added it into Scripture. And so we might be tempted to gloss over this. But if we're reading Scripture as Scripture, as God's Word given to us, then it's worth taking our time to, to study this closely. And so we can see as we, we look at this text that this verse is, is the literal center point of, of the narrative. This is a, a technique that's common in, in writing and is found in Hebrew scriptures a lot, particularly in the Psalms, um, as well as some narrative texts called a, a chiasm. Um, and the, literally what, what this means is, is it, it forms sort of a, a half shape of, of an X, where the most important point of the text comes at the middle. The first half of the text sort of builds to it, and the second half of the text sort of finishing things off and, and writes out what the author wants to say in sort of a mirror way. And so the, the focal point of our text this morning is verse 14. And so what, what the author wants to highlight here is the sovereign will of God to ordain events as they are reported in this narrative. The, the, the reason that, that Absalom calls for, for Hushai's advice, the reason that, that Absalom chooses Hushai's advice over Ahithophel's. The reason that Hushai is even there in the first place is, is not just a function of, of random chance, nor is it Hushai's persuasiveness in, in how he convinces and gives his counsel. It's a function of God sovereignly ordaining events and causing things to pass according to his will. And this idea of, of God's sovereignty and, and how we grapple with it and how, how we compare it with the idea of free will and responsibility and how we use this to account for, for what we see in the world around us. Uh, frankly, I mean, this, this can be a, a challenging concept to, to grapple with, and it, at times it can make us uncomfortable. But frankly, I think it's crucial for us to understand this doctrine and, and to be able to understand it rightly. Writing a, a hundred years ago, the theologian A.W. Pink described God's sovereignty as the key to understanding all of history. Pink would go on to describe God's sovereignty as, as declaring that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will. To say, that, <clears throat> to say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, that none can defeat his counsels to thwart his purpose or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he is the governor among the nations, the king of kings and lord of lords. And so we come to the text and we ask, what does this say about God? How does this text point us to Christ and how do we respond? I'm looking at, at verse 14 specifically, as well as the, the text surrounding it, I can see four elements of, of God's sovereignty. So if, if you're a note taker, this is a good place to, to start to craft some headings. Four elements of, of God's sovereignty that we see in the text. The, the first element is that God's sovereignty is personal. We worship a, a personal God, not just a, a faceless, impersonal force that moves throughout the universe. 
It's this personal God that interacts with specific people in order to work out his will. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Not the Lord had ordained to defeat the idea of this good counsel, so that the Lord could have victory over the abstract concept of evil. We see a personal God sovereignly interacting with his creation personally. In the Christian worldview, understanding that God is truly sovereign over his creation means understanding that our own lives are lived out under his sovereignty as well. I think in general, we're much more comfortable with saying that God is sovereign over things like inanimate material, like rocks and plants and animals and some of those creatures, but we balk a little bit when we think of God being sovereign and what true sovereignty means when it comes to our own lives. But if God's sovereignty means that God is working out the world according to his pleasure and goodwill, that means that we are beholden to his pleasure as opposed to being beholden to our notions of, of fairness or, or justice or, or righteousness. The problem with our ideas of fairness or justice or righteousness is that they've been tarnished by our sin. So the idea of God working out the world for his good pleasure might set off alarm bells for us because we think of good pleasure and we might be tempted to equate that with selfishness or just pursuing one's own internal desires. And again, for us as fallen creatures, that means internal desires and wants that are tarnished by sin. God's good pleasure, though, is not just some set of, of selfish whims or his using creation as a sandbox is just sort of an amusing way to kill a cosmic afternoon. Uh, to paraphrase the great philosopher of our time, Jim Carrey, God is not a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass who wants to burn off your feelers and watch you squirm. Beyond our ideas around freedom and autonomy and, and what that implies for, for justice, I think there's another element of God's personal sovereignty that, that for us, particularly as Americans, might make us uncomfortable. And that is in the, in the being the sovereign, that the singular sovereign, God has a, a unilateral, uncontested rule over his creation and over our lives. And that, that doesn't jive well with our idea of proper political rule. I won't turn this into a, a political theory lecture. But, but the reality is for us, we, we live in a, a post-enlightenment, post-revolution, post-20th century world where we've been surrounded and, and conditioned by the idea that representative government is the ultimate form of, of good in political structure. And, and so we, we look at a form of rule like, like monarchy or sovereignty where there's one being at the top. And given the way that sinful humanity has tarnished these structures, we can be very uncomfortable thinking that something like monarchy or sovereignty is a good form of rule. We need to remember, though, that the kingdom of heaven is not a democracy. God's sovereign rule is, is not given to him by, by some mandate of power that is drawn from his creation, much less even his, his own elect. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not bashing on democracy. I'm not saying that American government is bad. I think these are good blessings for us. What I am saying is that we need to be able to reckon with reality that what we think is, is good or healthy in terms of, of a, a form of rule is based very much on where we come from in our culture and it doesn't necessarily align with the picture of what God's word gives to us about him as our heavenly king. The second element that I want to draw our attention to is that God's sovereignty is continual. God's sovereignty is continual. In other words, God is not just intervening when cosmic forces require him to do so. 
sovereign ruler of, of the universe is, is constantly at work. The author of Hebrews says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, saying that this is an ongoing work in the person of Christ. And in 2 Samuel, if we trace our steps backwards from where we've stopped here in verse 14, we have to see God in every aspect that sort of led up to how we've gotten here. In order for what happens in verse 14 to occur, Hushai must have been present to give his counsel in the first place. The end of chapter 15 describes for us how that happened. Chapter 15, verse 37, so Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So Hushai was sent by David into the city. David was the means, but God ordained for this to happen. How did Hushai and David end up crossing paths in the first place? We see this a little bit further behind, uh, still in chapter 15, starting in verse 31. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. These are, these are not chance meetings. It's, it's not fate or, or coincidence that is bringing these men together, that is having them interact in the way that they do. We don't, we don't see this represented in the text. We don't see God taking advantage of, of random occurrences as if there are random events outside of his control that he needs some sort of cosmic rope to, to pull in and, and wrangle under his control. Paul describes God in Ephesians 1.11 as working, present tense, ongoing, all things according to the counsel of his will. This idea of, of continual sovereignty exists not just in a, a temporal dimension, but also across the, the scope of creation. And what, what I mean by that is God's continual sovereignty is not just continual across time, but it's continual across space as well. God is sovereign in the very, very big things of his creation and the very, very tiny unseen things in creation as well. R.C. Sproul used to say that there are no stray electrons in God's universe. Even things that, that we think of as, as random chance are under God's ordained rule. We see this in a, a proverb, and I apologize, I didn't put a slide for this, um, so I don't have the exact reference, but the language of the proverb is, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord, meaning that, that we might throw some dice, but God knows and has ruled and commanded how those dice are going to land. A few months ago, I tried to illustrate this idea with my kids, and, and when I say tried, I mean tried and failed miserably. We have, we, have, we have three kids. We have an eight-year-old, uh, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. We had, we had read this proverb, and I thought it would be a fun idea to, to illustrate this. So we took them outside. It was a, a beautiful summer evening. We got like a, a Yahtzee cup and a dice, and I said, okay, we're, gonna, we're all going to roll the dice, and when you roll a dice, you can't really see what it's going to look like. So I want you to think and guess what the number is going to be, and then roll it, and then let's see if you're right. So we did this, and they think, okay, it's going to be a four. Roll. Nope, turns out a two. Okay, this one's going to be a six. Roll. Nope, turns out it's going to be a one. The idea that I wanted to, to show them was that they weren't able to guess. They couldn't see the future, but God knew what that dice value was going to be. That was the idea of, of what I wanted to, to teach them. What I ended up teaching them was that dad is really good at giving us games that are impossible for us to win, and this 30-second lesson has just evolved into tears. I think what, what they took away from that night was never play Yahtzee with dad. Scripture is, is very clear, though, that the universe is, is or, ordered and sovereignly controlled by God. What might appear random to us, what, what might look like chance or, or something completely unpredictable, is in fact ordered 
and ordained by a sovereign creator. At one point in the 20th century, even Albert Einstein said, God does not play dice with the universe. And, and yes, I know there's actually more of a backstory behind this quote, and Einstein took it back later on. If there's any theoretical physicists in the room, you can come yell at me later on. The third element of, of God's sovereignty that I want us to explore this morning. God's sovereignty is, is intentional. Nothing in God's sovereign plan or his rule over his creation is a function of God making a decision and then just seeing how things turn out. Nor do we see anywhere in scripture a depiction of a sovereign God sort of scrambling to, to clean up a mess after he let things get out of control. The whole storyline of, of our text this morning of, of 2 Samuel as a whole, of, of scripture, really, the whole Bible is under the sovereign reign, showing us human history, under the sovereign reign of Almighty God. Nothing is left to chance or to contingency. We see God using human means in the arrival of, of Hushai and, and the emotional leverage that he uses in giving his counsel to, to, to Absalom to accomplish his will, but we don't have any reason to think that, that God, who knows the beginning from the end, who shapes the galaxies, who calls the stars by name, and then who also at the same time knows when a single sparrow falls to the ground. We have no reason to think that this God is not actively and intentionally involved in every single moment that we see in Scripture and in every single moment in our lives and throughout all of human history. It's, it's, it's also interesting when considering this intentionality that, that what God intends to do doesn't always align with what we expect. Even as, as we pray for God's will to be done, the, the manner and the means by which this occurs might look different from, from what we'd want. Let's look again at, at verse 14. For the Lord, had ordained to, the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. So the narrator is still, at this point, considering the counsel good, meaning objectively this was the better, more logical, more reasonable proposal. But, but David's prayer that we saw back in chapter 15 was, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So we see the appearance of, of Hushai as an answer to, to David's prayer, but it's not the answer that, that David was expecting. And so we, what we should understand here is that as we pray, as we seek God's guidance and we give him our petitions and we give him our supplications, that, that we trust that God is, is in control and that God will act with intention, not, not just as a, a knee-jerk response to our demands and desires. This is why our prayers and, and petitions should be sort of shaped and, and, and framed in a way that seeks first to, and aims to glorify God and to seek after his will and not just to, to search for answers to our specific problems or the trials that we're facing. The last element of God's sovereignty that we see in the text this morning is that God's sovereignty is covenantal. And all of the other elements that we've seen so far can, can sort of be folded and identified in this description Scripture shows us that, that God covenants with his people. A covenant is a binding relationship made between two parties, two beings. God's sovereignty is, is not just God exercising arbitrary rule over inanimate matter, but it is in part his shaping and, and guiding of human history that with, with people with whom he has covenanted. God's covenant sovereignty is, is continual. His, his engagement and his sovereign rule over his creation is the outworking of his covenant with himself. The covenant made within the Trinity to redeem fallen humanity. Some theologians would, would refer to this as the covenant of redemption. And so since eternity passed, everything that has been done by God is God continually working out his will to fulfill this covenant that he has made with himself. And God's covenant sovereignty is intentional. 
The actions and, and guidance of God throughout the past 10 years of, of text and, and history in Israel that we've seen in the last couple of weeks have not been a function of God playing catch-up or, or being caught off guard from David's sin. God's covenant promise to David will stand, and it's neither David's sin against God nor his repentant attitude that stirs and moves God to fulfill his covenant promise. I appreciate Rick's comments from a, a couple of weeks ago that, that the response that we see from David in chapters 15 and 16 was, was vintage David. This, this was the David who was a man after God's own heart. This was the David who was humble before God and praised him and recognized God's authority to rule even over David's own brokenness. Church, we should find this so encouraging that the, the sovereign work of God that we see depicted here today in chapter 17 is not dependent on, on the, the, the behaviors and the attitudes from David in chapters 12 or 13 or 14 or even the repentant attitude in 15 and 16. The, the, the sovereign work of God, excuse me, I just read that line, I apologize. God's fulfillment of his covenant promises are dependent not on David's fulfillment of the law or on the repentance and brokenness of David's heart following his failures. God's fulfillment of his covenant promises are based on God's own perfect and holy character. The covenant nature of God is what overshadows this whole text. Let's look at verse 14 one more time. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Twice we see here the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It is God who has done this work so that God's will will be accomplished. And so the question for us this morning is, how then do we respond to this text? How do we respond to the doctrine and, and the reality of, of God's sovereignty? And in talking with, with Rick about this text, I, I really appreciated how he pointed out how we're, we're seeing the, the drama of Scripture as literature mixed in with the doctrinal realities of our Creator. What we get in, in 2 Samuel is, is this beautiful literary picture of these characters working in and amidst God's sovereignty, even if they're not aware that God is sovereignly and actively working in their lives. We see this specifically in, in the character of David, that fallen and, and, and broken as he is, that he has an understanding of, of the sovereign rule and the promises of God. David, in, in the midst of his fall, in the midst of his exile and, and fleeing from Jerusalem, is prepared for whatever may come because he can trust fully that God will fulfill his promises and that God will ultimately glorify his own name. And the, the reason that David has that trust is because he has this understanding of God's character that, that when the sovereign Lord of the universe promises something, that it comes to pass, no exceptions. There, there's this notion of, of David having this knowledge sort of tucked in, in the bank, like tucked away in his soul, so that when, this, when these trials come, and they inevitably come, David can draw on this well of the knowledge of who God is. Friends, I think our, our text this morning in, in Scripture is encouraging us with the same message. We need to have this knowledge of God's ultimate control. We, we need to have this in the bank. We need to have this buried down deep in our hearts so that when our inevitable trials come, when we fall, when we fail, and fail we all will, we can be reminded of the character of God. Beyond this knowledge, I, I think Scripture calls us to act in, in certain ways, and, and we'll wrap with this. First, knowledge and, and understanding of God's sovereignty compels us to worship. We saw this in our reading in Psalm 33 this morning, and we see it in, in many other psalms, particularly in Psalm 55. Would you turn there with me for, for just a few moments? Psalm 55. 
Here David is, is lamenting an, an enemy. It's, it's not just any enemy. It's a, a companion, a familiar friend, someone with whom he used to take sweet counsel together. Starting in verse 12, it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house when we walked in the throng. Moving on to verse 16, David writes, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. David can cast to Yahweh the, the sovereign covenant God of Israel, his extreme emotional duress, because he can rely on the sovereignty of God's plan. And in that casting to God, David is worshiping. Second, we're, we're compelled to, to humility. We're humbled by a sovereign God that, that we cannot fully comprehend. We see this repeated throughout scripture. One example is found in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. A few years ago, my, my wife and I were taking our church's class on, on the EFCA statement of faith, uh, and, and David Erickson, who's a, a member here and, and has been an elder in the past, said something that, that has stuck with me for, for two years now. He said that in our study of the character of God and our study of his revelation to us, that there is to be involved a submission of intellect. That doesn't mean just checking our, our brains at the door and not thinking through anything, but it does mean humbly acknowledging that the God of the universe, the infinite God of the universe, is by definition greater than what our finite creaturely minds can comprehend. And third, God's sovereignty compels us to delight in God. Delighting in God means enjoying all things ultimately in him and through him. It means that as we draw closer to God, as we truly understand the nature and the implications of the character and the attributes of God, like his sovereignty, we find more rest and more comfort in relying on our sovereign creator, not only for our day-to-day -day needs, but also for our hope of all things. We delight in his sovereignty and in his goodness, knowing that he who has called us by name cannot be foiled by our failures and will never cast us out. Let me leave us with this quote. The Lord God reigns. No revolving world, no shining star, no storm, no creature moves. No actions of men, no errands of angels, no deeds of devil. Nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purposed. Here is a foundation for faith. Here is a resting place for the intellect. Here is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind fate, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. Let's pray. Father, you are a great and sovereign God. There are no stray atoms in your universe, nothing comes to pass outside of your will. God, I pray that we would be comforted by this knowledge, that we would have humility as we seek to understand this, that we would delight in this knowledge, the understanding of who you are, the understanding of the work that you have done 
to redeem us as a people called by name. Father, we are grateful for the time that we spend together in corporate worship to be able to, to give, to fellowship, to learn, to hear your word. God, we are grateful for the good things that you have ordained for our lives. Pray that as we go throughout our week, we would be continually reminded of this, continually reminded of your continual sovereignty in your creation and how that extends from the small creatures and the big galaxies to our own personal lives as well. We thank you and we praise you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.